Episode 56, guys. Welcome back to the Passive Hang. It's Fayon here. Very much appreciated to have your company once again. I have Aaron Martin on the podcast today, who is a movement practitioner, teacher, self-proclaimed soft acrobatics nerd who resides in Hong Kong. Aaron is originally from Germany, so we get to hear his story of how he ended up crossing the world. And also we dive very deep into his approach with soft acrobatics or the art of soft acrobatics. It's a great one. We're going to get started. I'll see you in there. Dive straight into it, which is episode 56. And I have Aaron Martin joining us on the podcast, who is someone based in Hong Kong. Let me just read out the little blurb that you have on your Instagram. I like it. It's nerdy acrobatics teacher paving skill learning pathways for curious students. Do you, That's do you wonderful, to... isn't it? <laughs> <laughs> oh, uh, yeah. Uh, do you, are you a self-proclaimed nerd or nerd about <laughs> acrobatics? 100%. It's one of the things that I, I, I like. Recently, I was on a call with Louis West, who you had on the show as well. And he was like, do, do you just want to nerd out about acrobatics a bit? It was like, hell yeah. And, you know, it's something I could talk about for a long time. <laughs> <laughs> so you just mentioned before we started that you're actually from, from Germany. And so obviously you're not in Germany now at the, at the moment. So what's the story there? Did you grow up in Hong Kong or what led you over to Hong Kong? Funnily enough, that story ties into um, the... Uh, proficiency of my Instagram bio because my wife uh, Claire comes here from Hong Kong and uh, she helps me with pretty much everything I do I hope I help her also a little bit with the things that she does um, essentially she helped me write the bio up as well and sort of um, uh, is speaking to me about how to present myself in a way that is easier to understand for people because I do get too nerdy too quickly but speaking of my story having grown up in Germany um, I always felt drawn to be somewhere else but my hometown, which is Frankfurt. And in the beginning, that meant I would move to Berlin, then move back to Frankfurt for a while, did parkour and free running with some of my friends who created an agency and lived off of performances and shows. But that still wasn't, well, I was back in Frankfurt essentially. And then I was drawn to um, Singapore, which is a, sort of a funny little detour until I arrived in Hong Kong, where it was sort of a, the ideal location because um, my wife Claire has got family in Malaysia and Malaysia is a bus ride away from Singapore so we literally met in Malaysia uh, at her grandma's place for the first time and um, from there like we spent a bit of time thinking talking and then she's like do you do you want to see what Hong Kong is like I'm, of, of course I'm down and now since then uh, Hong Kong has been my home for the last five years or so so have you always had just this uh, urge to travel or explore is that is that what it is like I think it's a big, uh, like a grand seeking where meaning is to be found more than the urge to travel. Because what I find now is that I'm, I'm pretty happy being in Hong Kong, traveling less in, in COVID times as well. What I'm uh, not satisfied with is my grasp on reality and how to live a good life. And that, I would say, drew me at first to travel with one of my heroes, Daniel Ilabaka, uh, through Japan which then sort of opened me up to Asia as the wider space that I'm like, something is here. I'm not sure what it is, but something is here. Turns out my wife was here. So that worked out well. <laughs> <laughs> That's the universal energy sort of manifesting, drawing you to a certain space. So did exactly. you say, but the first time you met was at her 
grandma's uh, family's house. So the the first time was in Malaysia at the airport before we went to uh, her grandma's place. Um, okay. But we had similar friends in common. She is a year and a half younger than I am. Um, but essentially, back then, there were only so many 20-something-year-olds who were really interested in, in movement, in the movement culture, and in creating a, a kind of business, something relating to teaching that is not just the freelance route. And that's how we, um, shortly after we met, pretty much, we opened our first studio in Hong Kong as well, which since we've closed just before COVID, right timing. But that was sort of the, the energy was... Uh, I think two young people interested in movement, movement culture and the, the, just the, the inward pull that it had on us and being like, we want to do something serious. We're quite serious about our lives. We're both university dropouts. Do you want to talk about what we could do? And from there on, everything sort of just went on. So what about your involvement with movement? You mentioned that you were doing some parkour and free running back in Germany. So has this been something that you've been involved with from a very young age? So whenever I tell sort of how I came to movement or how I came to find out that there's something there that I really love that now is leading me more to acrobatics, I usually start with this part. I played soccer from 5 to 15 years old. was good, but not great. It didn't really lead me anywhere. And I felt like, I don't know, I need to do something different. So I was looking around playing a bit of basketball and tennis. I did some BMX and I did some Hapkido, some martial arts. And I was like, again, there's something there. I can't quite say what it was. Then someone invited me to my first parkour jam. Uh, I got hooked, it was like super interesting. And essentially we're doing basic things like there was a really big staircase and the goal was, could you take off the third step and make it all the way up? And if that's done, then could you take off the second step? And essentially these little movement games make me come back. But where I would say I really got hooked is when someone said, do you want to try to do a backflip? <laughs> it's one of those standard stories maybe. Essentially there was a sand pit a sandpit and a really uncomfortable concrete edge. And like, <laughs> are you sure this is the right place? Like, is it, I, you know, I can't even, I've never done this. I don't have any acrobatics background. I don't do gymnastics. I'm not a circus kid. I'm not like Jackie Chan, even though I'd love to be like him. But you like, is this a safe thing? And they're like, yeah, we've done this dozens of times. And I'm not sure. They were teenagers who grabbed my hoodie, threw me around. I sort of landed on my feet quite close to the concrete edge, but nothing happened. So, you know, feet first. I was like, I, I, I guess, I guess I could try that by myself. And like, I think two weeks later, I did my first backflip by myself on grass. Wow. And that was like, mind blown. I thought I had, I thought I literally, I had to grow up as a, an orphaned circus family kid uh, who would be drawn in and would like fight for his life to make it <laughs> do something like as amazing as a backflip. And it turns out, it's not that difficult. And that's, I would say, where I got hooked. And just from there, the story sort of continues. Like, I can do a backflip. What else can I do? And so who are these guys that you found? They're just like local kids that just drew you into this whole parkour game and then challenged you to do these crazy things? Funnily enough, there was a forum. There, right back then, like no Facebook. It was uh, 2009, I think. Um, I went on a forum. Turns out there was a forum called the Ashigaru Parkour and Freerunning Forum uh, or community in Frankfurt. And yeah, there were some local kids who were just sort of training parkour, but it also turns out that uh, one of my earliest points of references for le learning parkour was Jason Paul, who now turns up to be one of the most followed freerunners. So uh, back then he, he created a crew with like two or three others 
um, and they sort of were in Stuttgart and in Frankfurt. And uh, essentially, I started learning from Jason, from Ennis, from uh, some of the basic guys over there. As in basic, they were just they were already doing super cool stuff and flips, but they were just learning them by themselves from the internet and teaching us as well. Not really with uh, with uh, yeah, it was more that community movement of we can we can do things together if we really work hard mm -hmm. on them. And it turns out, you know, I think just looking at Jason, I remember when he first won his first Red Bull Art of Motion. And it's like, that's, you know, suddenly the thing that's just what we would do on weekends and pretty much during the week whenever we had time and like would sneak into backyards that had nice walls to practice climb-ups in. And that thing suddenly like got someone like Jason on a world stage. And I think that's part of what, um, what sort of uh, led us to um, sniff the opportunity that was sort of lurking behind the curtains where now of course parkour is sort of all over YouTube at least from my lens <laughs> and uh, yeah that's you know it, it's a funny funny sort of coincidence how it happened but I still feel like the thing that drew me in more than anything was just going out training doing cool stuff um, that I thought wasn't possible and that we're not really supposed to or allowed to do Hey, when did this mix of almost like parkour and acrobatics start fusing together? Because, you know, there's like the free running, maybe a bit more purist way. It's just like getting from A to B in a really nice way. But then a lot of the times now when I log onto Instagram, there's guys and they'll just like finish it off with a front flip or whatever, a side flip. And you're like, well, not necessary. It looks cool. But when did, when did this fusion all start happening? It's super interesting. Um, in that I think there's sort of the official story that Sebastian Foucault split apart, uh, split apart from the Makassi, he started doing flips and somersault, and then it became free running and parkour and free running were separate things. But really at the time where, uh, when I started training already, um, Jason uh, and Ennis, there were Danny as well, um, a local kid from Frankfurt, they were already sort of combining everything. They were like, we want to learn whatever whatever works best. They were totally into hard conditioning. Like some of the hardest work I'd ever done, I'd done under the tutelage of a bunch of, I was 16, I think they were 18, 19 years old. Mm -hmm. And um, at the same time, they were also really embracing that free running spirit, that creativity. I think one of the first things that I did when practicing parkour in quotation marks was practicing rail flows which are not at all about efficiency. It's just about how can you get under and over the rail in fun ways. There's still some videos on YouTube that I recorded with a friend of mine with Volker, Volker Noll and Aaron Martin. I'm sure like if you find that there's a, there's a video called City Monkeys from olden times. <laughs> awesome. I'm going to go search that up afterwards. <laughs> <laughs> so with your, we were talking a little bit about, you know, this whole concept of movement, you know, movement culture, the rise of that beforehand. When did you start sort of hearing about this sort of concept? What's been your involvement or, um, yeah, what was, what's been your take on it since you've mm. discovered it? I think because parkour always was part of YouTube culture, at least from when I joined, um, YouTube was also the place where I found Edo speak about movement and that, that wider field. And I'm pretty sure it was the, ah, what's the channel called? Where uh, someone did like a super cut of Edo talking a little bit to the camera and then also showing capoeira and also showing his ring work, also showing his arm balancing, that stuff. That was one of the videos where I was definitely drawn in, but I was still 
deep in parkour culture. I think what I've started realizing is two things maybe. That one, if I give what I do, the name movement, suddenly a lot of doors open up. If I say I do parkour, I'm really distancing myself from the climbers. But wait, we'd also train in the climbing gym. We already are in a dialogue. And then if I could name what I do movement, it would sort of allow me to break some of the boundaries and to start to look almost what are the meta principles? What is the thing that goes on behind the, the surface? And the other thing was looking at movement. Oh, probably I can do this past the age of 30 or 35 or maybe 40 but that you know already I was performing at the time as like a 22 year old already having like back problems or 21 I think mm. like it didn't feel great I was like I probably can't do this forever I'm not professionally trained I'm sort of a lucky kid who happens to be able to have fun uh, jumping on a stage but that's probably not going to be my career and then with a movement it's like there's something there that I think is so holistic which is Probably something like taking our own physical health, especially our motor, like biomechanical health into our own hands, that I'm sure would translate into um, into slightly more meaningful work. As in helping people how to move and as well teaching myself learning how to move, that to me was more sus substantial and more sustainable than saying, I want to get good at parkour and I want to show off doing parkour. So yeah, I think it was YouTube, YouTube and Ido Portal. <laughs> <laughs> I think it was YouTube for a lot of us, which is, uh, yeah, love that platform even now. Mm -hmm. And so mm -hmm. you mentioned you were performing for a little bit. So what was this transition for a while? Like you were just like, you know, doing it casually with all these other guys and then you started getting a bit more professional about it. And now like when did, when did the teaching thing or, or the sharing uh, part of what you do start to arise? Mm. The sharing part, I would say, was there from the start in so far that parkour was taught in a community setting where everyone would know just because you're in here for longer doesn't mean that the next person doesn't have something meaningful to give to you. So if I was playing soccer and I had strong legs and I would do big staircase jumps or something, that would not necessarily mean that I can teach, but that we can have a practice together where you can sort of inspire each other at least. So that communal learning and sharing was for me always part of the parkour culture I grew up in, which then led to teaching workshops myself because essentially the trainings were just led by the more experienced practitioners. And then like as a 16 year old who was hungry for physical challenges, I did this for a year and a half and I progressed fairly quickly. That would mean there would be other 16, sometimes 26 year olds who would join and who would sort of, um, I could at least give a tip or two. And from there on, I think I started teaching my first or assisting the first workshop, I think a year and a half in, as in there were more official workshops, like five hour workshops. And then not too long after that, I would teach for a German uh, platform called Jochen Schweizer, which is like an adventure learning experience platform. And I would give five hour workshops on parkour. And there was no curriculum. Back then there were still no certifications, at least none in Germany. And none that I was sort of keen to join because, you know, certifications were sort of not ghetto, not legit, not the real thing. Mm -hmm. And um, then we would sort of think about how to create a curriculum where people who'd never done parkour could start to at least be inspired, get something and not hurt themselves in five hours. So that was, I think I was 18, 19 maybe when I taught those first longer workshops. Could be a little bit off in my numbers here, maybe 20 already. But essentially that sharing and learning was really early on a part. And then I feel like 
everything from there was just an extension. So when I traveled with uh, Danny Labaka through Japan, uh, and it's not just Danny, but it was Danny who inspired me to, to join him on the thing called Inspire Tour, quite literally. So it was a bunch of other amazing people. And part of that was, we're in Japan, there are a bunch of people who want to learn parkour, how can we teach? And then of course, there's not a lot of communicating, you know, like in broken English and from both sides, <laughs> sort of trying to get things across. And it turned out we just play games because it's easier to play games than to instruct proper technique when you don't have the, the language tools for it. But that was, yeah. So in that sense, I feel like um, both of my parents are educators as well. My mom is a school teacher. My dad is a, uh, I don't know how to explain that in English. He, he, uh, I don't even know. He runs a school for people who want to advance their professional career and like chemical who work in chemical plants. I don't know, but I know he's an educator and that was always sort of part of my, my upbringing. Mm. And I guess that uh, what at some point you also decided, hey, I want to take the plunge. I want to start my own space as well and start sharing it in, in that sort of format. Maybe tell us a little bit more about that. That's a good, uh, that's a good question. I think, um, or it's sort of a good question, what happened around that time? Because it was really formative in so far that both Claire and I understood that we're really much more interested in teaching than in running a space. And I'm not sure, you know, if some of the listeners here are thinking about running their own space or have already run their own space. It's pretty obvious that filling a classroom is a very different task than actually just being in the classroom and teaching to people. And while I think both of us, Claire and I, are interested in the marketing side of things and even how to like communicate in a way that can inspire people, um, running a studio in Hong Kong would mean we would have to fill our schedule with uh, many other teachers as well. And in that, there's like something about Claire and myself that mm, we, how do I put this? It's not easy for us to agree on the most profound things without, or, uh, hmm. Claire and my values are pretty aligned, but we're people who speak a lot about our values. We almost daily have conversations about when ethically something didn't go quite well, whether that be in a, like, uh, just we see something online or we work with people here and we're like, mm, there was a weird interaction. Do you know what happened there? Like, no, nah, not really. Let's figure it out. Let's sort of talk it through. And that would mean for us that in we, we knew and we know that we're not the most experienced teachers. So we have, I would say, a, f a reasonable amount of humility there. I'm not going to pretend that I have the level of experience of an Emmert Lewis or a Josef Frochek or Linda Capitanea or however I say her name or even Edo. Just all the teachers who have dedicated literally decades to learning and teaching. And at the same time, we felt like teaching regular group classes that seem to work a lot these days like a spinning class or an HIT class that's sort of a one-off script that just wasn't the thing that we want to do mm -hmm. and at the same time that seemed to be the thing that is marketed it's like you know it's the yoga class where you come you sort of switch your head off you follow the flow and um, that's it and it's actually I take those classes myself a fair bit as well like I'm I love that and it's not what I want to it's not the thing that satisfies my deeper longing of communicating the uniqueness of movement and the physical body and what we're capable of that yeah we're looking for mm. i get what you mean and um that it makes me wonder what, what is it like over in hong kong like what is the 
you know, people's interests, the general sort of physical culture there? What are, what are people interested in? I think the first thing I started noticing coming first to Singapore and here in Hong Kong, it's not too different, is that people seem to be more, uh, people seem to embrace movement more than I expected in that you'd go to almost any public space and there are always a bunch of people either doing Tai Chi or already like being on the pull-up bars. All these little fitness parks are around where in Germany, even though they're bigger parks, but they're not necessarily sort of fitness corners as much. Um, so already coming here, I felt like people seem to be, it still culturally seems to be, movement seems to be a bigger part of the culture. Where in Germany, they had sort of, sort of been, had been a, a gymnastic movement in the early 20th century. And from that, like, uh, I don't know, there's a, even Pilates or like, I've heard about Feldenkrais as a teenager. And I, I didn't know what it was, but sort of somatic movement was a term that I already knew. So there's uh, some awareness in Germany, but it's different. It's just different. So in Hong Kong here, how do I describe it? Probably it's pretty similar to everywhere else in the sense that yoga is big. There are CrossFit gyms, people go running, there are cycling, indoor classes. Oh, one, one drawback of Hong Kong is you pretty much can't cycle, at least not practically. You know, you can go on a cycling track, but since there's Hong Kong Island, where most of the action happens for us, where we teach a lot, and there's sort of Kowloon side, you, can't, you literally can't cross on your bike onto the island. And to use the, the public transportation, you have to sort of unscrew your bike, and it's a big, big effort. So in, in that sense, I think it's fairly similar. And I can see that people are growing in awareness for wanting and needing to move their body. That it's, it's a thing is almost everyone either knows that, well, I, sh I know I should be doing moving a little bit more, but I don't quite know where or how, or they're already moving more. And they're like, nah, I know I could, you know, I could do a little bit better. I know when I run my knee slightly feels not comfortable, but I know it, it could be. So I feel overall, maybe it's just being like sort of, uh, already swimming in that culture and maybe it's something real that we're realizing you know after uh, I don't know 60 years of box culture and box offices mm. and box houses and box cars and that whole talk uh, maybe we are getting to the point where it's like yeah that's just not going to work much longer so what 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 are we doing what can we do to make this uh, living in a physical body in highly cerebral environments um, how can we make that work mm. and how, how do you what do you, how do you describe to the people around you about what you teach and what you do? Like you mentioned, you teach a variety of different sort of classes. So, you know, do you, do you just say it's movement or if you take, you know, the hit class or something, do you just say, yeah, that, 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 that's what I teach. What's, what's your current sort of way of communicating it? Mm. For the longest time, I've uh, considered myself to be a movement teacher, really more of an interest for movement rather than a proficiency in movement as a topic. Of course, partially because it's such a huge umbrella term that is simply difficult to satisfy. Um, nowadays, I teach, I consider myself mainly a soft acrobatics teacher, uh, a soft acrobatics teacher, because it's something that I've looked more into over the last five or six years, which is what are the basic forms and outlines that in order to develop an acrobatic practice need to happen? Uh, also, what does it look like to learn acrobatics as an adult, which was, was or is true for me as well? Then sort of what are the mobility requirements around that? And then what are the strength requirements to really make that a sustainable long-term practice that can serve me for, I hope, 20 years and longer? 
um, just from sort of seeing the like odd 45 year old or 50 year old doing their own acrobatic practice and like yeah exactly that's what it can be it doesn't you know the stiff the stiff uh, 40 year old dad is not a not really a thing anymore at least it doesn't have to be and I think that's sort of part of the awareness what I teach though is different so I do teach just purely soft acrobatics syllabi and I teach a movement and mobility class and in that the dialogue is much more about we're learning to solve little movement challenges more efficiently a little bit we try to increase our range a little bit we're looking at what does it mean to move close to the ground in squatting patterns? But a lot is also, uh, can you do a roll across the floor, keeping both your hands and your feet always touching the floor? And that's sort of a challenge that I think is easy to sort of just try. But in the process of doing that challenge, you almost inevitably have to become more adapt, more efficient, more coordinated as a mover. So that's sort of a mobility stuff. And then I start teaching a gymnastic rings class. Of course, it's a gymnastic rings for beginners class. So sort of the reason why Ido says the gymnastic rings are the greatest tool because it will challenge you in 360 degrees of motion and it will be unstable and it will be difficult. And then he shows off like the amazing uh, ring routine sort of strength, like a forward roll, a backwards roll. Uh, I don't know, doing a planche on the rings, all that stuff we're not doing at all. But we're looking at what are some good pulling mechanics that will help and balance my yoga practice. So... In that sense, I teach basic soft acrobatics, I teach basic movement and mobility stuff, basic strength on gymnastic rings, and sometimes I've got more advanced movers who are like, can you teach me how to please do a cool backflip and I don't want to face plant. And that's also sort of part of what I do. <laughs> Is that when you lead their hand over to the sand pit next to the, you know, the concrete edge and you go, this is how I learned. The, the great thing is here in Hong Kong, there are absolutely no sand pits, so no concrete edges in sand pits either. But we did have to get creative with, or uh, let's put it this way. For me, an acrobatic practice or a hard acrobatic practice is different from a soft acrobatic practice in that really the goal is on the skill and the landing is sort of secondary. Really, you know, you know for gymnastics, of course, you get scored on how you land, but you're also landing on a crash mat. Or for parkour, it's like, yeah, by now there's a, the competitions have judgments where execution is part of the criteria. So if you really face plant, then it didn't matter if you did a triple backflip, you face planted, so you get zero there, but you still might get some points on difficulty or something. I'm not sure exactly how it works, but that's sort of where for me, the hard acrobatic is almost what happens in the air, what happens in that moment of suspense it, it doesn't really matter if you like bruised your heel on the landing because the audience didn't know. Therefore, me, soft acrobatics is the flip side of the coin. It is almost exclusively what is the quality of the movement because I want to do it for a long time. So it doesn't matter if I ever do a backflip, if 200 backflips in, I land on my face and break my neck. That's sort of the, you know, the, the actual reality in some of the... Well, almost in any environment, we like. Uh, I was devastated when I saw years and years ago. Uh, I think from Iran, somewhere around there, if I ignorantly may say so, someone who did a triple somersault landed on a crash mat, broke his neck, and died. And that, like, it's so unfortunate. Honestly, it could have happened to me if I just slipped doing some of the parkour runs that I did. So I don't think there's anything to blame there. There's some inherent, uh, inherent dangers in doing acrobatics. And at the same time, I think shifting the focus, learning how to be really soft and sustainable only with hard floor, that has got incredible value. And of course, when I teach, we also go on grass. 
we also have a crash mat at some of the spaces where we teach. So it's not that I would discard that. Sometimes it's super fun to go to one of the trampoline places. But then I also know at the trampoline places, usually once a day, maybe every two days, someone rolls the ankle, someone breaks their arm or like, you know, worse things happen, less bad things happen. But that's sort of where um, I feel, uh, yeah, learning how to teach acrobatics with no equipment on hard ground and still improve that's sort of the challenge that I subscribe to that I think is super rewarding as well. The hard ground is very unforgiving, right? Or it forces you to be, to be a lot more careful, a lot more considered, right? And I wanted to unpack a little bit about this, this uh, term soft or, or softness. Maybe, mm -hmm. yeah, you know, because it's not just the landing, right? Also, it might be more visually described as when you see people, when they do it, that's like, oh, that it's not like a as you mentioned, like a, a hard bounce landing of a gymnast who's trying to then rebound to go off into the next move or something. But there, there is this softness there, but then there's softness all throughout as well. So maybe, yeah. Can you take us through how you consider this, this concept of softness? 100%. Um, I think first I want to sort of frame the soft acrobatics question, which is really, I didn't, I didn't term the thing. Uh, I, I, Actually, it's a bit hard to say, to see who termed it. When I did my little Google search, I found that Edo had written in one of his posts, uh, he used the term soft acrobatics, but he only used it like once or twice on Facebook. Um, I think in 2013, maybe. I'm not sure about the numbers. But since then, that was, that was a thing. But after that, I think he started naming it different things. So I know that Odelia called it microbatics at some point, which is slightly different, right? But it's really th that thing that we're trying to talk about. And soft acrobatics was or is for me just a term that is sort that represents the thing that's very easy to grasp at the same time. It's about acrobatics and something about that quality in there that has to be soft that describes the same thing. And since then, I can only recommend for people to follow the hashtag soft acrobatics, or I, I started the channel at soft acrobatics as well, just resharing some of the movers there. And I didn't manage to keep it up, but it's something I want to go back into as well, because there's this wide field of practitioners who come from the most diverse backgrounds who for some reason follow the same rules. And the rules are something like having more or less hard ground and doing acrobatic movements that are soft, that are pleasing to the eye, that include inversion, include rolling, include some form of arm balance, or at least being upside down, sometimes that are really advanced tricks, sometimes that are really simple tricks, but done so beautifully that I can't help but want to move that way as well. So from there, sort of why soft acrobatics, I think maybe, I think in a lot of disciplines, let's say, uh, I'm just naming some of the disciplines where I see different movers coming, like that's their background, and then they move into something more that's like soft acrobatics, which are some breakdance, some contemporary dancers are like, they've got their uh, term called floor work, which is pretty much soft acrobatics, hard floor doing advanced stuff. Um, circus is, yeah, its own thing. And of course, I think Louis West, uh, who I heard the podcast with on your show, amazing as well, um, I consider him to be one of my teachers, at least he's been teaching me a bit and I want to pick that up as well. Um, he spoke about how he might have contributed to the genre of floor acrobatics that is less just hard somersault gymnastics and more interesting creative expression sort of thing. But mm. then we also have capoeira as one of like a big influence. By now we've got some trickers who of course sort of come from the martial arts, martial arts tricking background, who are going back to softer, more interesting floor combinations. So then you've got this whole 
just a wide range of movers who are practicing only with the floor in creative ways and focusing not on the grandiosity of the trick or on the difficulty per se, but on the execution itself, which then probably the best term to describe it is there's something about the softness in the movement or the effortlessness that is sort of tangible when watching a clip that makes soft acrobatics soft. And I would love, um, I would like to sort of hear your perspective and where you're at with this as well in a second. But if we can, in a moment to go more into why does softness and effortlessness, uh, why is that appealing? I think that's something sort of, if we can pause it for a moment, I would love to hear though, how do you see the whole, you know, soft acrobatics thing? And, and yeah, I don't know. Do you see something similar to what I'm seeing or, or where's your perspective? There is definitely a special quality when you look at these people moving in this quite intentional way, right? That is very different to what you see, like the Olympics is on right now. And I can really appreciate that. I mean, I love that as well. And I think for me, it's more like, I like what you mentioned before there, which is about like expression and expression of the body. And I think it can exist on the same spectrum. You know, there, uh, there is times where you want to be hard and fast and be able to exert that sort of power as well. And then there's times when you want to be soft and maybe it's just the softness is something a bit more novel, a bit more less seen, a bit more, uh, a bit more, yeah, a bit more new. So when you see that there's, there's something about it, but I think there's a layer as well of almost like this feeling of that there's even more control because you are able to gently go through all these motions, be able to absorb this impact that there's something for me appealing about that quality. And then it does speak to, you know, this thing of, Hey, I want to be enjoying this practice for a very long time. You know, I'm not like a young 20 year old. I'd like to be doing this for another 20 years because when I see all these practitioners that are doing all this stuff, like, yeah, people are doing it for a very long time. So, you know, I would like to keep on nourishing myself in a quite wide varied practice for a long time. And maybe that, that word a soft then, then appeals to me in terms of, Oh, okay. Similar like hand balancing, less sort of impact. That's something that I'll be able to enjoy for hopefully the rest of my life. I don't know. So that's, that's probably my appeal and yeah, my, my take on it as well is I don't know where I've seen the label come from before, but it sort of just makes sense once you see like either a contemporary dancer do something or a capoeirista doing a certain type of floreo and there's that sort of soft quality of it. And you're like, yeah, that's soft acrobatics. It sort of just sticks, right? Mm -hmm. Exactly. Yeah. Same. I have a, I have a very similar feeling and I do think that's why, um, that's why soft acrobatics is going to grow as well. I love what you added there with the feeling of nourishment relating to the quality of softness. If I like, if I use the word soft and I just start to describe something, it's almost like a silky smooth feel. It's also very nurturing. It's also like a, a blanket type, a comforter blanket that has, you know, just the right amount of softness. And that I think there's something in that where we see more than the external we also see the what it represents which is like gracefulness beauty it can be explosive and i actually do think that makes a, a soft acrobatic practice more appealing if there are these accents 
just like in a in an invigorating conversation there are points where it gets really exciting but then you can also sort of mellow out and just tune back in again um or any beautiful piece of music for that art uh, for that sake um i do think because that like that there's the appeal of very coordinated movement that probably says something about distributing load across the body well i love how much better slow motion um practice got uh, slow motion cameras because i do think in the olympics it becomes a lot easier for us for me to appreciate something like a hundred meter sprint not in the sprint itself not in the 10 seconds but in the slow motion footage where I can see that person is moving so softly, so beautifully, so connected with no spillage of energy that this is appealing. It's the almost making the exact, the best use of the energy that flows into the system for it also to exit the system. So that all that we have is literally translated into that one motion. There's a term that I, I keep calling it that because I can't come up with a better name. I haven't heard a, a description that really fits, which is uniglobal intent. That is something that if I see any dancer, any pro athlete, any Olympian, and I look at their whole body in slow motion, then I can look at the little pinky finger and I see the intention of the movement reflected in the pinky finger. Mm. And I think that is something that is easier to appreciate in soft acrobatics that usually happen at a slower pace than it is at really advanced like tumbling uh, sequences or even parkour for that sake. I think parkour is like, impressive uh, for very different reasons, <laughs> which is probably more the elevated heart rate, roof to roof sort of sort of things like, oh my God, he could have died, but he didn't. And now I happen to watch it on video. But I think that's a different appeal. And I think the appeal of that softness, that quality, that ease of movement that reflects longevity and health in a way is coming at a good time where people are ending up being really skilled in their yoga practice, in their CrossFit practice, in their running and cycling practice, in all the practices, because they're seeing and getting much more information, much more feedback online much quicker. Mm. Even if the only thing I've ever done is post my run once on Instagram. In that one moment, I get weirdly aware for how I look when I run. That before, at least, you know, my dad was a marathon runner. I, I've never heard him speak about running form a little bit. He's like, yeah, you have to have the right footwear, otherwise you'll hurt him or hurt yourself. And like, he was, he was doing some interval training with me because he wanted me to get, or I wanted to get faster for soccer as well. But it's different, I believe, now that we're at sort of at this almost self-exposing stage of social media. That, of course, has a lot of drawbacks and, you know, the shadow side is definitely present. Hmm. But at the same time, there's this huge sort of a sunlight being um, shown. Am I saying that correctly? <laughs> I'm not sure. <laughs> but sort of, you know, the the our... Uh, I think we're becoming, it's almost like a moment like uh, uh, Adam eating off the apple, <laughs> <laughs> biting it off and being like becoming so weirdly aware of his, his uh, nakedness and his insufficiencies and his, his, uh, his human faults, being able to distinguish between good and evil. And I think for us, at least there's a little bit of a reflection where we're, you know, even with athleisure, athletic wear, essentially it's so that we can... Uh, maybe demonstrate, but also be aware of our body in our clothes. It's so different to practice in super wide baggy clothes compared to in what's becoming more trendy, the leisure wear, leggings, tight shirts, you know, that that whole stuff. Mm. And I think, yeah, um, I'm not sure exactly where I'm going with this, other than I do think soft acrobatics is at an interesting point 
because many people are becoming skilled practitioners. And I do think the many practices, when you get to the skill ceiling, tend to become self-defeating or tend to become worse for the body. Where if I'm a really good marathon runner, I'm not sure how good my knees are going to be. Or mm. if I'm a really good crossfitter, for sure my shoulders are going to be, you know, at least I'm aware that they're not going to hold up for, for the longest time. But seeing something like soft acrobatics, it's almost like the more proficient the mover becomes, the more uh, easily the mover moves to the end ranges, goes in extension, flexion, inverses on hands in different positions, placing weights on the balls of the feet is also very balanced. It's almost like as you're becoming more proficient and more advanced, and hopefully the quality of softness remains, you can also see that that person is pretty freaking capable. Like for that to turn bad and turn to the flip side where it becomes bad, I think you have to overdo it quite a lot. Mm. And that's, yeah, well, at least think uh, to, to come to the, on an end for that long tangent. Within soft acrobatics, it's possible to progress widely, high skill seating, and still maintain a really balanced body that doesn't run into the risk of um, provoking overuse injuries too quickly. I got a few comments and I want to ask a, a yes, question. Yes, please. I'd love to hear I, them. Yeah. But I'll, I like what you mentioned there with about like the grace um, as well. Uh, so like this, this quality of, of gracefulness, because as you were talking through all of this, it started to get me thinking about um, the differences between maybe some famous sports people that people may know. So, you know, like in gymnastics right now, yeah, there's that um, American girl, Simone Biles, and she's like mm. full power, right? Like she's so crazy, like powerful. It's amazing. But then on the flip side, I don't know if you've ever watched like in the 19, was the 60s, 70s, Nadia Comaneci, and then the way she moves. And you could almost say that, that that's like a, a form of soft acrobatics because when she goes in the balance beam, even when she goes from the, um, what, what's it called? When they got the two bars from, from low to high and she catapults mm -hmm. around it, it's, mm -hmm. it's almost even bars, yeah. Mm -hmm. very soft as well and so there's like a, a complete difference in styles or when you watch soccer like uh, I always used to really like watching Zidane or Kaká because there was something graceful about their movement versus like you know a Cristiano Ronaldo who's like full power once again mm -hmm. and it's the same mm -hmm. in tennis with like Federer versus Nadal mm -hmm. so that's yeah yeah, so I think it's really about like, yeah, this, this spectrum, right? And this expression and maybe it just appeals to different types of people as to, to what draws, draws you in. 100%, yeah. And I think as we're getting more exposed in general to amazing feats of strength, skill, beauty in general, um, I think it's easier to appreciate ranges opposed to singular qualities at least from what i know like i i think most people by now have seen the graph that highlights the um left and right side of the american political spectrum and how it evolved in the last like 20 years or so from the average republican being sort of just you know really close to the next democrat but then over time really the the mean turn to like the the two poles are more and more opposing and of course you know through throughout history we always have these um these back and forth motion of i don't know the 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 dark side and the bright side the side of the light and and i don't know good and evil right we've got uh, jordan peterson 
um, who I really respect and admire for the work that he put out with chaos and order and sort of bringing that into the forefront of consciousness in some ways, um, which is probably a conversation we shouldn't, I shouldn't go into here because it's really controversial. But I think what is not as controversial is sort of that, that the, the spectrum of the left and the right and the awareness that both seem to be incredibly valuable. And maybe, I mean, by now I'm just projecting a lot of stuff onto soft acrobatics as well. I do think there is the softness and explosiveness that can sort of live together in the same realm. That is interesting. Just like a symphony that is only played in the uh, in, in really quiet tones is not the same as one that sort of has more range, that has mm. more more ability to carry me through different emotional states. And I, yeah, I think, no, for sure, softness alone is not, uh, it's almost, it, it's not complete. I think softness and acrobatics, because they have been seemingly opposed to a certain extent, they make an interesting combination. Mm. And so, you know, for people who want to get started in this whole realm of soft acrobatics, you know, what's your approach? What, what do you get people to, to work on first? Um, uh, I'm making an effort to put more uh, relatable tutorials on my Instagram. Um, that being said, I can, the next thing that I have to say right away is looking at different sources, different teachers. You have a bunch like Neil Teisner is one of the people. Will Brown, I know is interesting to follow. Louis West, of course, even though he's got very advanced stuff, there are a bunch of capoeirista channels that I would recommend following. Uh, Enjoyyourself.movement. Um, what else? Uh, whom do we have? Uh, there is Tom Vexler, which is more of a dance background, but also very artistic. And then just following the hashtag like floor work to sort of get the, or footwork from um, b-boying to sort of get a, an idea of the spectrum that I think is cool. Uh, maybe you, if you follow, currently follow the hashtag soft acrobatics, well, you'll probably see most is floreo capoeira type sequences. And whenever you see something that looks like it would be possible for you to do, I can only recommend go for it and try it. If it comes down to the more specific, uh, if you want, we can also go in, into that a little bit more. Um, it just becomes sort of a, a, whole, a whole other box to open up, which may be interesting to open up at some point. But then I would say um, practicing something like a cartwheel, becoming aware for the different qualities of a cartwheel and how to make it feel really easy so that fear is not a limiting factor anymore. That in itself is a pretty rewarding journey. From there, the other thing that I would probably approach is finding some dynamic extension movements. And that is a task, one of them is like sort of a hybrid rotation or low bridge rotation. Could be a cartwheel and extension, even though that's already more difficult. But it could also just be a swipe from breakdancing, which if you, if you don't know what it is, then maybe I can describe it just real quick, which is sort of you're in a deep squat and then you place your right hand behind you on the ground, keeping the hip low. Then you push yourself up so that you create almost like a quarter arch. And then you move in that moment where you're almost weightless your right hand off the ground, push yourself off and place the left hand on the ground. So you're sort of swiping your arms from right to left. And that's sort of a nice, more beginner extension movement that people can practice. Or even something like a half bridge rotation. In other words, uh, a tabletop position, which I think most people know, sort of all fours on the ground, but your hip is facing, your belly is facing towards the ceiling. Then lifting one hand up and then sort of reaching the hand that's free as far behind as possible getting into that shape itself, if you haven't tried it out in a while, give it a try. 
from here, don't stop yet. Try to find your shoulder towards the ground while keeping the hip off the ground. That in itself, I think is such an interesting challenge. It's like, uh, I've heard the term kinetic koan being mentioned before. It's like a, a movement challenge mm. that if you can figure out how to do that sm smoothly to go from a tabletop to a half bridge, then into dropping your shoulder onto the ground and sort of softly coming back to squat or sit, that, I don't know, for me, it's a journey, it's an adventure, it's worth doing. And with a cartwheel and that movement, there's already, uh, probably you can picture how to combine the two movements together. And that's where then the world of flows and sort of connections and sentences and, and um, poetry starts to open up. It's interesting how you mentioned this thing of like a, some sort of extension movement, because I, I feel like, yeah, that's, um, that's something I'm trying to work on at the moment. And when I look at a lot of people who do acrobatic type, type movement, there's a lot of, you know, this dynamic arching of the spine, but it's not just the spine. It comes from the hips and it's very unnatural for me because you know the opposite of that when you're curled up into a ball is like the safe position right so it's like you're trying to commit to do something and for whatever reasons then you hit hip drops because you kind of want to go into more flexion right so do you have any tips for people that to, to open up more into this extension especially like in novel movement where you don't feel as safe mm -hmm. yes um, first thing, a source that I want to drop that I think is extremely helpful for even learning more about this is antranic.org and look, or being on Google uh, looking for the term The Floreo Project, which is someone has accumulated the library that once was entirely open source that Ido Portal created within sort of the, the more capoeira type language. He's got a list of exercises that I think are inspirational both to look at and that are completely doable, even though not all videos are available anymore. But antranic.org, the Floreo project, I think is a great resource to go to. When it comes to um, practical advice, what uh, I know Emmett Lewis is speaking more about and in general seems to become more interesting in the wider movement culture is training flexibility as a strength trait. So finding some form of a really active position in the end range. Mm -hmm. And one of the things that I can recommend tons to do is a version of the sissy squat where we place the right or the left hand just behind ourselves on the ground. And then it doesn't become a pure strength movement. It becomes a bit about weight shifting from the hand back onto the feet, trying to keep the hip up there as high as possible. It's completely possible to scale that as well. So I would approach it from that angle, sort of hip, every, everything from the belly button downwards, strengthening in something like a sissy squat. And then the opposite end would be everything from the belly button up, strengthening it in extension. And there I like to do an exercise um, uh, that we call low bridge push-ups which is sort of starting from a back lying position, um, feet on the ground, so knees are pointing towards the ceiling, then lifting our hip up as though we're sort of doing a glute bridge or a glute raise, then um, pushing our, using our hands to push our hips on top of our heels. So the heels mm. will come off the floor, the knees will start instead of pointing up, point towards the front or almost towards the ground. So then we're in that almost sissy squat shape with our lower body. From here, we take our hands, we place them next to our ears and push ourselves as far towards our knees as possible. In other words, not pushing up into a high bridge push-up, but instead in a low bridge push-up, trying to shift our body weight as much as possible over our feet. And then there's a really nice point where the two movements start to connect, which if you do this enough, and sometimes for some people, a session is enough to get this. For some people, it will take a couple of weeks, but you'll definitely see progress within a few sessions 
of doing these low bridge push-ups, even if you just do 10 for three sets, you like do that for a week, twice or three times a week, you'll, you know, you'll just progress. That's how movement works, right? But from here, you can sort of go from the low bridge push-up, push yourself so far that you end up in a toe squat. Mm. And once you've got that transition of sort of bridging from floor to sitting, there are a bunch of really interesting shapes that we can already dynamically do, which is you can now go from a toe squat into a low bridge rotation over one side, and then you can either rotate through the other way, or you can go into a shoulder roll. So then you found a way to go into a shoulder roll from an extension pattern, which then opens up, you can do the same thing from a high bridge, uh, if you have the range, of course. And then I think the big, one of the big things that I keep playing with in soft acrobatics is um, pretending that my skill journey is as though I was traveling up a pyramid which of course has like at least three sides. I'm playing with a four-sided pyramid, which is if you imagine the big like Cheops pyramid in, in Egypt that I'm not sure if I'm pronouncing it right. But if you try to climb it up, sometimes there'll be parts that are just too high to climb and they're, you know, falling apart a little bit. What we can always do is approach the pyramid, the climb from the different angle. So as long as I can find my way around the pyramid and practice the same skill, but in a different angle, sometimes literally, being more or less upside down, but sometimes using a prop or using a visual aid or something like it, then we can start to for sure make progress without getting stuck at at plateaus at a frustrating level. So it, the the other thing that Ido as well um, uh, did in that Antranic Floreo project are hybrid rotations with the help of the wall. We're just back facing the wall, taking two steps away from the wall, reaching the right hand back towards the wall, um, sort of matching the left hand to come into a bridge shape, an arc, but that's not a very steep arc. That's sort of, you know, easy to do. And then gradually working our way down. Mm. All that being said, this is sort of the conditioning layer. For me, my experience and what I experienced with some of my students is that the conditioning only becomes easy when there's a reach skill that becomes easier because of it. So there's this direct purposeful connection of, no, there's a really cool move I want to do. That's why I do some of the more annoying work. And the sooner we can find the cool moves we want to do that feel somewhat close, I feel the easier progress is working. That's where for me, these days I go out literally, I mean, I, sh I shouldn't be too strict about this, but anytime I go out and I don't know what to do, <laughs> most of the time I'll end up doing something I've never done before. And to me, that is just super rewarding. To me, that is something like freedom of motion, not in that I can do everything, but in that I can do something new that I've never done before pretty much every time I practice. And of course, you know, by now my, my, my sort of base marks of strength coordination and mobility that like triad, they're pretty solid. And of course, I've also practiced parkour for or started 12 years ago or something. But uh, what I'm finding more as I teach is that that point is possible to come earlier and earlier in practice where we just find easier elements that then start to connect sort of a whole world of soft acrobatics for the practitioner. What did you mean by like reach skill? I heard you use that terminology. So that's just something that you, that you know, is just a, li a little bit above your level, but it's, it's good to just put it there to, to aim at it. hundred percent. I, I, before I coined it, I turned it something different and then Claire was like, nah, man, you have to call it reach skill. Otherwise it doesn't make sense. So since then I started using the term, it's essentially the idea that in the entire process of learning, we can almost exclusively work our way up the tree by picking low hanging fruits. So in other words, there's always one skill at least that is just in reach, where if we just stretch ourselves a little bit, not crazy, not like 
prone to injury type stretching, not being stupid, just, you know, going a little bit towards that zone where if we can stretch ourselves and really make an effort, we can actually accomplish that skill. And for me, it's then once I set a reach skill, if it's far enough away, it means there are a couple of um, rungs down the ladder that are closer. But from there, I can sort of, I have this network. This like, I can always come up for every person, at least with three different things that could almost immediately get that have to do with extension. And with three different things that have to do with jumps and something like an aerial. It's not gonna be perfect aerial, but it's gonna be a thing where you're off the ground, where you do something like, well, a mini B kick, a mini aerial, however you wanna call it, even if you use assist, you can for sure do it. Some level of inversion. Of course, for people who are really apt, adapt at handstands, that's different, but there will, as in, they'll just have different levels of difficulty. They'll be able to reach a little bit higher up the tree. But yeah, like the, the idea of reach skills, I think is a, is probably what's kept me in parkour and acrobatics for so long, just intrinsically motivated. Not because I feel like I have to be the best or like I'm gonna win that championship or whatever, like I'm definitely not, but there's always that skill that's just around the corner that if I stretch myself, I can reach. And that's, yeah, why they're reach skills. <laughs> you mentioned the aerial, and I think this is a good one because um, I'm working a little bit on it myself, you know, the, in a couple of where I think they got the ALSML. And then, you know, if you, think of cartwheels as one of the foundational elements, then, you know, natural progression of that is, you know, you don't want to use both your hands. You want to just use one and then hopefully, hopefully none. So maybe that's a good practical example that a lot of people will un understand. And so how would you approach sort of, uh, yeah, teaching that, breaking that down, learning that and with that layer, I do, I do also want to ask you about integrating that with uh, flexibility in terms of like speed and flexibility, because, you know, for, for me, my flexibility is okay. You know, like I, I can do like the front splits and stuff. And, but then it's a different type of demand on the body when you have to do it with a very fast dynamic motion. And I don't think mm. that too many people talk about this trait within the flexibility realm as well. 100%. Um, uh, maybe we can split this in two questions and sort of the flexibility itself, I think is super interesting and how to, um, tailor the practice so that sort of mobility and coordination aspects are, um, creating, a, a synergy, a harmony. I think that's super interesting. Let's go there in a bit. And first, I think the, how I would teach the aerial or how I do teach the aerial, um, we can follow the pyramid principle again. And for me, the pyramid principle is not that I thought about four different ways of doing everything. Instead, it is that I know that if I spend enough time thinking about any skill, I'll come up with at least four different ways of progressing. So in other words, the, the common method, the easy to visualize method is do a cover with two hands, do a cover with no hand, do, uh, sorry, do a cover with two hands, do a cover with one hand, do a cover with no hand. We could even, you know, say, oh, we're a bit more creative than that. We're going to do a two-hand cartwheel. After that, we're going to do a, a left-hand one-up cartwheel. And then we're going to do a just right-hand one-up cartwheel. And then we sort of snug another progression in there. Would probably be smart to do. But between the one and the zero hands, it's just such a big gap. So what do we do? Because I'm definitely going to stuck there if I do it for the first time. So let's see if we can come up with uh, three or four different sides of the pyramid. The first layer of progression that I would build in is probably... Let's see, I would start to play with delaying uh, two or both or one hand. So in other words, instead of saying, I'm just gonna do my cartwheel, the average person when they start doing their cartwheel is gonna put 
the left hand down if I do a left side cartwheel before they lift their left foot up. In other words, there's no actual jump, no, no point where there's no contact to the ground. And because of that, chances are I won't go as fast and I won't really have a jump in it. So it's sort of a slow-ish mechanic. So from here, I can start playing with, if I were to have a mini, mini jump in it, so I'll still keep my hands, you know, just above the ground, like a centimeter off, but I'm not going to put weight on my hand or both hands yet. Then from there on, one way to measure progress is, if I record myself with a camera, how many frames can I delay my hand placement on the ground? And that in some way will definitely reflect my ability to jump, to sort of be in the cartwheel shape and so on. And I love that, like literally, if you put your camera to 24 frames per second and iPhone makes it really convenient because if you just scrub the video, you can count the frames. Then you can measure your progress by literally looking at my hand is, my foot is off the ground here. Now there's one frame, there's a second frame. On the third frame, my hand touches the ground. Perfect. So that I can scale up and I can then even apply still the two hand, one hand lens. Lens. Then the other portion that I can play with is to say, if I do a really long cartwheel and I pretend to only let go of my hands. So that's a different angle that we're coming from now. And I, if I pretend to just, you know, not use my hands, then I would make a huge jump. So instead of learning or teaching myself how to make a huge jump that probably I'm never ever going to do, I start to shorten my cartwheel and through that have another layer that I can play with. So from here, one of the earliest cartwheels I think that's easiest to learn is the more tricking capoeira style, not just gymnastics way, which requires tons of flexibility, but it's an option, but it's hard. <laughs> <laughs> then shortening the cartwheel and Keith Barn that you had on your podcast as well. He taught me this approach years ago. I was like, I learned a lot from him. I got to say the channel at physical practice on, on uh, Instagram check that out. It's worth so much. Yeah. Or, you know, find the podcast episode here on this one. And I, yeah, I listened to it. I think it was great. But he then spoke about the segmented cartwheel, where really we want to make the traveling distance as short as possible. So here I've got this other thing where I can learn to just measure how far I might uh, take off foot, the pushing foot. So the, the one that comes off the ground second and my landing foot, which is also the kicking foot, how far apart are they in, in space? Mm. And the closer I can make this, chances are the easier my arrow is going to be to the point where now, literally, my arrows feel almost the lightest, cheated arrows, tricking arrows, when I place my foot, uh, takeoff foot and landing foot within one foot distance apart. And every time I'm going further apart, it just gets measurably harder. All right, we've got two angles. I want to cover one more at least and then speak about the conditioning aspect, which sort of is also just another angle to talk about it. Mm -hmm. But it's a good, I find, example to see that really when learning the arrows, we never, we never have to be stuck because we can always think up another angle that you can at least start trying. The chances are by the time you've covered four different angles, you come back to the first angle, suddenly you'll be easier. So then really it's that low hanging fruit idea. So another way that I would play with this is, I will argue that everyone listening can already do a mini version of an aerial without hands. But the way we do that is we're not gonna just jump and not use our arms, instead, we're going to do a, the capoeira cartwheel first, the jole. I'm not sure how to pronounce it well. But it's sort of the mini cartwheel where we place, um, yeah, let's see, I, I tried this visually. I place my feet in a toe squat on one line. Then I've got a parallel line slightly behind me. And I'm going to place both hands behind me, for me slightly to the left, that's the easier version, on the, yeah, both hands on that parallel line. Then I just step my foot over so that, my two feet and my two hands and then the next imprint of my two feet 
are sort of creating a really wide triangle. So in other words, all I'm saying is we're doing a really uh, baby cartwheel, stepping the foot over, not mm. even having any point where we float. So once we've got that, then I could do that without my hands on the ground as well by just trying to dip my head below the level of my hips. The mm. easiest way to do this is with a mirror in front where you can actually test yourself. So you could, you could try this if you have a mirror at home in some space. Just look at the mirror, go into a toe squat or low squat in general, then keep looking at the mirror, tilting your head slightly sideways, and then start looking so that you take one big step over your own uh, reflection in the mirror. And if you can just take that step and your head is underneath yourself, then maybe you didn't do a jump yet, but you have the basic for doing a mini jump. Then do the same thing, adding a fraction of a second where you do a hop. It's not even a jump. It's essentially just stepping over. If you imagine there's a sort of a little, like a, uh, what could it be? Uh, uh, we've got two little um, uh, poodles. Let's say there's a poodle and I sort of want to jump over the poodle with one foot and then drag the other foot behind. I'm doing a mini aerial. So now if I look at myself in the mirror doing that, it's, it's a bit hard to explain visually, but the moment I coach people through it, pretty much everyone can do it first try. So from here, the measurement the metric becomes different where I want to kick my feet over either an imagined or an actual barrier higher and higher. So that it could be soft yoga blocks or anything mm. that I feel comfortable with. So I do the same jump that I know is a baby jump. It's an easy jump. But now I challenge myself by kicking over that barrier higher and higher. By definition, the moment you sort of reach over hip height, at least you have an, an aerial where you're more upside down than, than you're upright. And that would be, you know, one other area. Sorry, it was a, that was a lot of talking and a lot of sort of imagining. I hope people are still with us. But do you have anything to sort of add or, or, or uh, yeah, feedback from that <laughs> discourse? Yeah, I really like that. It's like, you know, looking at it through different lenses because sometimes it feels, I think when you're trying to like learn new movements, to a to a point and sometimes it really clicks right when you just go for it and you're just like practicing whatever sort of rendition of the movement that you can almost achieve right and then it just happens but then mm -hmm. sometimes you get whatever some sort of block some sort of there's like this neural miscommunication within the body where you can't mm -hmm. intentionally will it to do what you want to do right because it has like this stored pattern within it or this stored stored way of just it's just too novel so it can't comprehend it and then so yeah you get stuck and so i like how those three approaches i can see all change it in different ways to provide almost this different type of stimulus especially like that, that last one just to almost get this principle of that you need to have like your hips above your head right for for the aerial so that you can start experiencing that but in a safe environment really well put yeah really well put i do think with um uh learning in general, or one of the rules that I found just really, really useful for myself, and then I started applying it to my students is, we never move towards fear. And my, my wife sort of plays with this term saying, bravery is technical. In other words, bravery is not random, because if it's random, it's really just being stupid. Hmm. If I go into a war that I can't win, you can call me brave, but really I'm just, you know, I'm just being stupid. But bravery is at the point where you know, know it's gonna be difficult, but I have a plan. And I believe in my plan, probably also have a backup plan and a, another route to go about, then it's not really, it's not really fear that is, um, that is playing the bigger factors. Having a plan that makes 
fear being the being an element that is not as much in the foreground. So for me, yeah, generally in my practice and how I coach, I literally tell students, don't do anything that you feel fearful of. Because there, I know some, like, there can be a rewarding space, especially for teenagers or younger kids, where playing with that fear is super exciting. Uh, good, usually, you know, around 10 year old, you can really still mess up a lot without actually hurting yourself at all. Mm. But that's sort of um, a, a, a good rule of thumb, sort of a break off point that at some point, we just don't want to play with fear because chances are that they're exposing a real danger in the practice and the more we sort of lose our pathway the more difficult it is to actually you know have that holistic practice have that good feeling have that sense of freedom in what we do mm. yeah that's um sort of counter to normally what i would expect or to hear right because with a lot of this it's almost like you need to start developing this relationship with with the fear and 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 sit with it and i know yeah certainly there's times you know when i mess around with just jumping around with the playground or something and that fear element comes and you're just like you know what i think i just need a i just need to face it but you are right as well i think the smart way of doing it is to know the backup plan such as like you know if this doesn't go so well what's going to happen and um that's 100 percent. that's probably what we need to be focusing more on right that's such a smart um observation as well or just remark i think um one thing that i keep bringing up is the safety exit that i wouldn't want to be in a tunnel especially a long one that doesn't have any safety exits <laughs> uh and similarly like the the i wouldn't walk on a tightrope that's really high up the air where i can fall without a safety net but then i think the misconception often is that the safety net is doing the work in in keeping us safe where in reality falling into a safety net has to be something that you practice right because you know like oh man the safety net if you have got your arm behind your back and you land on it that safety net is going to do something to your arm I think a lot of times like um, soft and bouncy surfaces give us that wrong sense of comfort, but man, do people get injured in trampoline parks. It's just a thing. Like you mm. don't get around it. Um, and what I find is, um, for example, what really helps people getting rid of the fear of kicking up into a handstand, of course, is doing it next to a wall, but it's not doing it next to a wall without technique. I can still do it next to a wall and just fall over if I'm too far away from the wall. So then how can I start using the wall as a, a partner, as, a, as that safety net that I get familiar with? What we play with, what we start with is take only two finger distances away from the wall so that you place your index finger really close to it. Then start kicking up, but don't kick up in any way. Don't try to reach the foot towards the wall because that often can sort of lead to an arching pattern. Try to hit your shoulder towards the wall. Mm. And try to hit it to the wall, then it's sort of a head in position. Yeah, we don't, we don't get the perfect alignment. But it's learning to feel the real risk of failure. But it's just a shoulder bump. And then over time, we can start to move something like four finger distance or a hand width away from the wall. And it's still just a shoulder bump. It's a more challenging shoulder bump. But as long as the worst thing that I can picture is a shoulder bump, then I can feel like, Oh, actually, maybe I was just holding myself a little bit back because kicking into a handstand doesn't require that much strength, less than you would think, at least. I think that's a good rule of thumb. I would love to touch just for a second, maybe before circling back to the flexibility question around aerials, etc., mm. um, about the difference between risk and danger. 
it's a uh, it's I have so far not heard anyone speak about it as well as someone I met in Singapore his name is um, Kai Elias I think is his last name he has an Instagram he teaches parkour uh, under the handle werewolves movement um, to elderly people as well so he's got you know he's an educator as well he's a school teacher really into pedagogy and how to how to teach well um, and he spoke about the difference between danger and risk that Oh, and uh, uh, I heard on your podcast, uh, Flynn Disney, I think, mm. to speak about it, where the risk is really the probability of something going wrong. Danger, on the other end, is the severity of the consequence. So then we have a vocabulary that allows us to, well, deal with danger and risk in a more measured way. Because I think the misconception is that acrobatics is dangerous, but I'm in charge of the danger, very similar to parkour, mm. where crossing the risk, uh, crossing the risk, sorry, crossing the street is extremely high in danger, but the risk is super low. In other words, if, as long as I can trust that everyone's kind of doing their job, I look left and right, and I'm going to wait until the traffic light turns green, the risk is super low of anything going wrong. Mm -hmm. But the danger, if it goes wrong, if a car hits me full speed, that danger, the thing that could happen, the consequence is very freaking real. But for some reason, we're not, most of us are not super freaked out about walking on streets, even though we're really close to speeding vehicles all the time. So then it's not really that, you know, they're like the danger is the, the scary thing. It's learning about the, the probability of something going wrong. And there, I think, because in soft acrobatics, we don't have an opponent. We don't have an instrument. We don't, we barely have any unreliable things outside of ourselves. That means we can learn to be really well in charge and in control of how much risk we expose ourselves to. That's where, um, well, every time I have had a fail that was major, that was not a fun fail that had consequences, I know I was pretending that I wasn't afraid. I know I was pretending that there was no discomfort. I was like, I'm brave. I've done this before. I can do this. No problem. It's okay. I'll, I'll get through it. But it's, I'm like so far within soft acrobatics, I haven't had one bad trip up. Like, sure, I've got, I, I've pulled muscles before. I've done things like this. I think a beautiful quote that I heard on your show as well is the, or saw on your Instagram is uh, Louis saying, never waste an injury or something like that. Mm -hmm. Never let an injury go to waste. And I think it's true that there are these risks within soft acrobatics. A pulled muscle is almost guaranteed at some point. Like, you have to be extremely cautious for that yeah. not to happen. Or, you know, there will be a tweak and stuff. But for something to really go wrong, you really have to overstep a boundary. Um, that is, if you are, you know, playing with that boundary space, playing with, with uh, how do I feel? How can I predict the outcomes? How can I even rehearse bad outcomes? In parkour, uh, I think Ryan Ford, I'm not sure if he coined it, or um, Amos Rendao, uh, play with the idea of parkour yukemi, which I think is a Japanese term, which is something like deliberate falling practice. Mm -hmm. we, we rehearse the worst outcomes so that the worst outcomes are not ones we're not prepared for. Because that means the worst outcome is one that I already know that I can even deal with, that I've literally done successfully or overcome successfully many times, then the worst outcome suddenly is not so bad. And when the worst outcome is not so bad, that's when I think it becomes so much easier to access that sense of freedom, almost a relaxed way of moving that still can be powerful because I know my power is not going to spill over and tear me apart. My power is going to serve the initial outcome. It's that uniglobal intent idea. I can actually put every part of my body to use that then makes the practice really fulfilling and, and just really, really fun to watch, really fun to perform and to, yeah. 
just to comment on that before we circle around back to that that other second part, part of that question that um yeah that's always when i really love watching these guys these parkour guys when they fail but then when they just somehow they they recover so well or even when it doesn't look like the recovery as well they're still good to go and i think the person who astounds me the most doing this is um, Dom Tomato on Instagram. Oh, 100%. When, <laughs> when that guy, I don't know what his body is made of, but when he doesn't hit like a certain precision jump or something and it just looks like his body gets crushed and then he just, yeah, he just rebounds back and he's fine and he's good to go. Uh, mm-hmm. His level of ukemi or uh, um, ability to, you know, absorb that or, or transform that, that force and direction is unbelievable. Mm. I think in parkour, parkour are some of the most disciplined fail practitioners or fall practitioners, like not deliberately practicing falling, but exposing yourself to a point where, you know, there's real risk, but the danger is just not that high. So in other words, if I practice jumping between um, two sides of the road, you know, if, if the road is narrow enough, I've got the curb on the one side, the curb on the other side, and I fall, it's just not that bad. Even if it's a huge gap, if I've practiced this a couple of times, I'm just going to roll off or like sort of slip, but sort of deal with it. And then I think in parkour, it's also that it, I, I do find um, parkour and soft acrobatics can be very similar in that aspect that we can really work our way up the low hanging fruits. And it's like the video game that is perfect in the way that you know it rewards you with exactly the same kind of challenge. You have to struggle, you fall a bit, but you're just always just on that edge where you're, I guess, Chiali makes and chick sent me high flow sort of zone where you can really, you know, challenge meets level of skill. It's not frustrating. It's not boring. And I do think like in parkour, it's just falling is a big part of the culture. And I, I would love for, you know, for yoga classes and yoga classes to be more that the case where in, in movement, uh, in my movement and mobility class, we half the time I spent just rolling across the floor. And of course, you know, there's different ways of making it fun, introducing challenges, uh, playing with speed, playing with placements, playing with, with, with all the different things. But essentially, all that we're repeating, telling our nervous system and, and our subconscious is it's completely too fine to be with your head close to the ground and to roll across it and to start with some momentum towards the ground. And that's not a bad thing at all. And I think from there, something like um, that even yogis will be able to appreciate is to go from a, it depends, it requires some strength still, but to go from a warrior three pose, sort of that uh, cantilever position, upper body at the same height as the, as the back leg into a single leg downward dog. And from there, finding any way so that you're with your back on the ground. And that itself, I think it's such a, you know, just practicing this a little bit more can make even advanced hand balances feel much more comfortable because suddenly there's actually a pathway from hands on the ground upside down to safe and on the back. Mm. Love it. Makes me want to roll and and practice my falling a bit more, which I have done before. It comes in phases and yeah, it's, um, I think like the first time when you start unlocking like the, the roll front roll from like a full handstand position you're like oh like if i just do that and then that's that's okay now and then it's like a whole new world opens up right the whole new chapter i couldn't agree more for me it was when i started doing uh slightly off axis backflips and practicing bailing out of it and it's like wait i don't have to do a perfect flip and 
I can still be fine. It's like suddenly the boundary between, yeah, just between um, success and failure gets a little bit blurred, which then I think it gets really exciting. We know this from a lot of the, I don't know, I, I look at someone like Rodney Mullen and you know how much he must have played at that edge. Just that constant like failure and success is so close or they're, they're like, they're, it's not so definite because you could completely fail the trick, but there was a little element in it that got you a little bit closer where you know instinctively, intuitively, your whole body feels that you got a ton closer to that desired outcome. Um, Keith Barn introduced the term kinesthetic library to me, which I found so interesting because like, yeah, we, we can have whole phrases or sentences, structures of movement that we can literally save as one thing. And then that one thing, I think uh, there's a few things, uh, a gain or flash, like taking off of one leg, doing a layout backflip essentially with a leg straddled apart. That movement, I could picture and feel what it would be like if I could do it almost perfectly years and years because I, before I could do it well. Even now, I, you know, I'm not perfect at it. No single move that I do is, is, you know, at the level that I want, but that's also every time I practice, I get to improve a little bit. So it's a benefit in that sense. But I knew like for a fact how that final movement would feel when it would be effortless. And I'm not sure like if it's a, just a, a random memory prediction that I've butchered since and you know, it's actually not true or if it's actually some mirror neuron thing where you know, we see other people move, how effortless it can be and look and feel like. And then something in there just matches and sort of overlays itself and it's perfect. Like, yeah, when you have the handstand and you can roll out of it, suddenly doing a handstand entry over one arm. So whether it's a cartwheel or sort of a forward one arm, then the other arm, that's a completely new thing. Mm. And it's completely possible because you know, the worst case outcome is just not that bad. And from there, yeah, no, it could just always go on and on and on. <laughs> <laughs> well, let's circle back to that other part that we wanted to address, which is, um, you know, mobility or flexibility within dynamic movement, acrobatics, and yeah, how you sort of uh, address this, because you know, I think a lot of the things that um, is desirable is more static positions, such as the bridge, the middle splits, the front splits, that sort of thing. But what I find is it's a completely new experience trying to express those ranges in motion. Mm -hmm. I think the first thing I have to say is that I'm no flexibility expert that I do look like uh, Emmett Lewis's recent podcast bandability, I think is amazing mm. for that sake. I'm learning so much. Um, I do, I do find that I have to make my practice really closely connected to my reach skills in a way that I know if I practice flexibility, I can't for some reason, I just could never do it. Practice flexibility for the sake of flexibility. But what I could do is thinking about, how can I make my Gumby better? And the Gumby is a, a cartwheel that's essentially traveling through an arch shape. So at some point, the belly button is literally facing towards the ceiling. You can even look towards the ceiling as well. So the Gumby is, well, I, I think a beautiful shape. For some reason, it's really attractive, really intuitively looks nice if people do it well. Um, but then I would think, well, how, how can I do that? At least I can practice a handstand against the wall in sort of that hollow back or Mexican handstand shape. And I can now start to feel like, what would it be like if I were to float in that moment, that second? So I'll do something like toe pulse in a Mexican position, mm. not really because I want my shoulders to be more flexible, but because I want to feel what it's like to get the Gumby. And on the way there, I want to improve the flexibility of my shoulders. So now that I did that, I would practice another thing, which is, can I, um, I've never liked falling over into bridge positions from a handstand. 
because at one point I tweaked my back there mm. and it was, it was just, it didn't feel good since then. I didn't like teaching it. Uh, it's been quite a while back. So, you know, it was one of the never waste an injury. I learned a lot about intra-abdominal pressure and just in general, making sure that the extension is more well-rounded, but I, I didn't like entering it through the handstand specifically. What was a lot easier for me is um, do practicing um, bridge rotations. So my bridge rotations have sucked for a long time. They're okay now. They're not great, but essentially going into the bridge from a sideways position, right? Sort of bear crawl or falls on the ground and then rotating over or the other way of doing it is sort of starting in the squat, placing my hand behind me and then rotating into that position. And there I knew it didn't have to be great. I just would have to feel like I can dynamically rotate and hold this position even though it's not a good bridge at all, but it's sort of a position I can be in. Now I can do the same thing dynamically. What does that mean? Well, it means that instead of both feet being stationary on the ground, I can at least try to do the same thing where one foot is off the ground and then on the ground. So always one foot still on the ground, then I sort of flip over and the other foot taps on the ground as well. Then I come to this position. Suddenly there's, well, suddenly there's movement. Suddenly something is happening. Suddenly it feels like there are about 10 variables that I all have to juggle in my mind. It's almost like uh, solving a really challenging crossword puzzle. Not that I've ever done that, but you know what I imagine for someone who enjoys crossword puzzles or I don't know, playing a guitar riff that is, you know, just at that right level. So suddenly I'm practicing this over and over again. And I know there's a desired level of smoothness for my current skill level. In other words, where my level of preparedness meets the exact level of challenge in the skill that I'm practicing, where I'm not practicing something that I'm not prepared for, that I'm going to get hurt in, but that, you know, I can just feel it's not going to be the perfect bridge, but it's going to be my perfect bridge for today. And suddenly I have a practice in which I, it's just a lot more rewarding. So next time I come back and I think, can I do the same thing? And my feet, both feet will be off the ground for one moment. So in other words, I do a mini jump into a bridge. It doesn't have to be a big jump, right? It just needs to be a jump. In that, what I'll find as I keep doing it is that if I push my shoulders more through or push my chest more through my shoulders, in other words, I'm more in an arch shape, I'm more open, then I can make that floaty part feel nicer. So in other words, the better I go into hyperflexion in my shoulder and have my hands behind my head, the easier and floatier I can do this jumping into the bridge. And suddenly that starts to translate into my Gumby. So again, it's sort of when the dots connect and it's like this giant network of nodes, I think a lot of people have seen sort of the, you're connected, a graphic of you're connected to all people in the world through six links sort of thing, mm. where we see all the dots on the planet and then they're sort of create a web and then there's a giant interlaced web. And I feel when that happens in movement, it's, well, we really in, in some way develop a more interconnected way of, um, expressing the movement language that that is innate to us as individuals as people as persons and when that that web just becomes more and more interlaced i know that through my practice i don't know i've i've, I've taken one surfing lesson and it was amazing because i knew how to fall i knew how to uh, jump up on a board how to do mini burpee how to surf on the top of thing i knew how to balance a little bit and i feel like i can have that experience in almost anything. I can have that experience in yoga class because I know for sure there'll be at least one pose that's right at that edge where I'm like, I'm really struggling, I'm challenging myself, but I also know enough about my level and my abilities that I can get a little bit closer to my edge, reach a little bit further. And as a result, leaving that yoga class, I'll be a little bit more capable. If I'm lucky, it translates into something that I really admire and like practicing. If I'm not that lucky, then I just had a good experience and I'm you know, not gonna make much use of it, but it was a good experience. <laughs> Can you speak a little bit about uh, yeah, like other sort of general conditioning, 
or strength training that you may also do in conjunction with this practice? Yes. Um, I think for that, I need to go back a little bit into my, uh, I think strength and flexibility are so personal that, um, and they're so closely tied for me to goals that giving general recommendation or general shoulds is a bit difficult, but still possible. All right. So for myself, I started doing parkour and in parkour, a climb up with a high, was a highly valued thing. In other words, when you hang on a wall that you just climbed, but you're still below the point where you had a support hold, you have to climb up somehow. And if you do it quicker, well, you'll escape the imaginative bad guy a lot quicker or whatever it is. And so I practiced that a lot, but I was also only at the body of a soccer player. So what I found is that my shoulder blades were quite uh, winging quite prominently. It was impossible for me to hold a tuck plunge for quite a while. So then from there on, I would sort of be like, mm, I sort of don't like that I can hold a tuck plunge, not specifically because of anything, but because I know probably it would be better if I could move my shoulder blades in a way that would, they would be better connected to the rib cage so that I can Kong better, so that I can whatever do other movements with more ease. So from there on, I started sort of um, uh, swinging my way forward onto the different milestone patterns that I feel make my practice more complete as a practitioner and that I form most of my other skills. So for me currently, my, um, my arbitrary strength goals are, I want to have a beautiful full range handstand push-up, Cause I know if I have that range, a lot of the acrobatic skills that I admire are gonna be better. Similarly, I think my muscle up is quite okay. Uh, sort of bar muscle up, I've just practiced a bunch. Um, I do am working towards pulling. Uh, I have a pulling practice because I want to feel strong in it. Maybe just because I'm following sort of the current paradigm. Um, I like being able to retract my shoulders, put them in challenging positions. Front lever is something that's incredibly difficult for me. I'm quite a, like I'm 178 centimeters tall. I'm like 80 plus, 81, 82 kg at the moment. Pretty difficult for me. Heavy legs from parkour, maybe soccer as well. Um, but this, those are sort of the, the metrics over there. And then what always fascinated is I want to have a good full squat. And because, because I feel that's a, that's a basic human trait, I have a picture of myself as a baby doing a perfect full squat. And I know things change, body weight, proportions change, the head weighs relatively less, we've got less leverage and so on. The joints all serve the function that we trained them for, which for me was a lot of sprinting and jumping and landing, which means of course my ankle would have a harder time, but I can still get it. And that's the beautiful thing where I'm like, I just continuously see that as I get older, I become more flexible in the ranges that matter to me. How do I know that the ranges matter to me? Because those are the ranges that I practice. And then the other thing is I want to have a high bridge rotation and a low bridge rotation. One that looks appealing. Because I know when it looks appealing, when it has that ease and, that the ease and grace and effortlessness, then I know and I feel effortless. That's a big part of it, right? I don't want something to look great but it for to feel terrible because then i start to be a performer where i sacrifice my body for the external thing mm. instead i really want to have the thing that you know the 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 full package i want the external to look like the feeling on the internal so then for me if i know i can do a, a, a low bridge rotation and a hybrid rotation that just challenges an extension slightly differently if i have those two parts i'm pretty i'm i'm done with my extension work i can always do more but that's sort of when i know it's just the landmark that I want to have. Similar for a squat. I want to squat and get up with ease. I want to talk to a four-year-old on the ground without having to put my knee on the ground with ease. And um, yeah, those are sort of the, the, the way how, how I approach it. But um, 
I want to make sure, did I misunderstand you a little bit? Did you like, what's, what do you think? What's your, your current take on it or your angle or where you're interested to talk? I think it, you pointed out to like, it's all very context specific for the, for what you want really. Right. And then give, I like what you have there, which is like, you're quite clear with like your movement goals essentially, which are some of them are quite mm. almost people could say foundational and basic, but something that you still want to really work on such as that fundamental squat pattern. And then there are other ones where I can feel you're working on it with this sense of refinement of quality, which is something I want to highlight here because it's not like uh, you've just got the low bridge rotation or high bridge rotation and, you know, tick that off. Let's go, let's go over to the next one. But the way you're talking about it is yeah, this sense of ease and grace that you want to achieve to it. And that, that demands a much higher level of practice or investigation towards that movement pattern than just going, okay, yeah, I just want to, I just want to do it. That's so well said. Yeah. So I was wondering, you know, if you had the chance to visit yourself maybe like five years ago, would you give yourself any advice in terms of, well, it's yeah, in, in terms of your training and, and your practice? That's such a good question. Huh. Um, what I find, so even though I'm speaking about the external, about the actual movement a lot, what I'm still most drawn to in the realm of movement is how to have a well-adjusted mind in a well-adjusted body. Because for me, really the, purpose and that's one of uh, my yoga teacher um, Naveen Mishan is that's something she talks about which is really the the big goal is not to lose our minds because we're going to lose our bodies anyways like something that is you know it's going to go down the drain and then the big question is can I still handle like um, almost like uh, there's a sense of, of a stoic pursuit maybe but that's not really her, her, her nature she's quite different but for me it is that um, I really the big riddle for me is <laughs> what do we have to do to to not go insane, to not get depressed, to not get overwhelmed by anxiety, to to be able to function in society with people, with families, in this odd reality where social media is a thing. We know the um, algorithm that optimizes for time on site is not probably the best thing for our um, mental, emotional well-being. So for me, that is sort of the big question. And... Um, under that, the question is, what is good movement? And for that, I'm finding, the more I'm sort of looking into the field, the more I'm understanding that probably to get solid answers, I, I want to and need to get better at both studying and reading science and writing in a way that eventually communicates the message in an appealing way. So sort of to have the finesse of a good writer and at the same time the skill of a really diligent scientist um that is probably what in the big picture i'm most passionate and care about most and at the same time i know right now i have the benefit oh, i'm 29 years old i have the benefit of youth and a lot of that means strength and mobility development doing advanced stuff all that stuff is going to come easier to me and not going to be easier later on so the, the whole five years back question is, 
Um, probably a question or the, the same advice that I would give to myself now is continue to or make sure that you find really good sources and that your epistemology or your ability to um, make sense of things is sound that you don't get carried away by by the shiny thing that looks great and that you at the same time don't get lost in the depth of just jargon and i think it's almost like i don't know find ways find better ways to develop wisdom mm. yeah <laughs> it's a bit of a non-answer but i hope that that still does the trick for someone who i'm really enjoying at the moment who i I think uh, fulfills that role of a scientist who communicates very, very well is um, Andrew Huberman. And I don't know if you've they've come across his work and all his podcasts, but you know, it's uh, he's presenting that in a very, very interesting way. I couldn't agree more. I love, like, I love that guy and following him and his journey. And I do like for him, what, or for me, what stands out when I listened to his journey was that he sort of went all in into studying. He loved, the competitive environment of really, I don't know, grinding out the reps of studying, uh, what was it, neuroscience or I'm not like ophthalmology, I'm not sure what that is, but you know, that, that really deep process of going deep into the subject matter in a way that he could tangibly measure progress. And that I think Jordan Peterson with Maps of Meaning as well, his sort of wrestling with the topics of chaos and order through the lens of mythology for 15 years man, that was some invest. But what came out of it on the other side, what I really appreciate is, is incredible. Like it's so helpful it, to me personally. And I have the, um, um, well, I have some desire to be of use, <laughs> to, to contribute to things probably a little bit to prove myself that I, you know, I'm, it's okay that I'm here on this planet, not just wasting space. But also there's, there's a really, a really, I can sense a really deep desire to make sense of the beauty and meaning of things. And it's, I know for myself how easy it is to get lost in, in um, uh, just the negative side of everything. <laughs> so yeah, I think Andrew Huberman, it's such a nice, like he, he embodies that a lot for me. So probably I would tell my five year younger self, um, well, Andrew Huberman wasn't out there yet. I think he hadn't published anything. So right. you know, I couldn't even told myself anything. But it is the, you know, how to find out how to do some of what he does. Mm -hmm. <laughs> and outside of training, what do you most enjoy? Um, hmm. That's a good question. Uh, I'm not, I'm not uh, stunted because I really enjoy training or only do training. I think I actually train relatively little. <laughs> um, I, on average, I tend to, um, well, I teach a bunch, but then maybe I train on average, I don't know, 45 minutes a day, something like that. Not a lot of time. Of course, sometimes three hours a day, but then I don't really train. Ah, and there's some mobility work. So maybe it's a little bit more than that, but not that much. Um, I, I really enjoy um, reading up on topics that make me feel like I have a better grasp on reality. I'm listening to Daniel Schmachtenberger. He's a sense maker. 
Um, that's one way to describe it. Listening to people that make sense is really rewarding. Then for me recently, what I've been spending more time with is, um, is um, looking into ecological dynamics, ecological systems, and um, sort of how complex systems thinking and sort of in quotation marks, chaos theory applies to motor learning. I think that's super rewarding and interesting in a field that's sort of just um, growing as we speak. But then I find incredible meaning to, uh, to spend time with my wife. And it's not even one specific thing. It's sort of trying to make sense of the world together and struggling through some of the great questions together and, and really falling hard sometimes and continuing the journey. And outside of that, uh, I love our, our two dogs. <laughs> Those add a lot. <laughs> That's nice. What are their names? Uh, Chuck and Chips. Um, Chuck and I Chips. sort of only, nice. I came into their lives um, more than they came into mine. So Claire already had these two adorable black turning gray poodles. And, um, it, they, you know, they have their characters, they have their personalities. <laughs> and, and it's, yeah, it's just amazing. <laughs> <laughs> so... Maybe just for a final one to wrap up this conversation, which has been really wonderful. I think we've covered a lot of different areas. Um, I always see you training in very interesting locations all over sort of Hong Kong. What's your, what's your favorite sort of outdoor space or location at the moment where you like to, like to do all your training in? I, um, I love being outdoors in general. In Hong Kong, it gets quite hot, so a shady, shaded place. But also, I have that, that uh, venturing part of me that I train doing parkour, where there's the excitement of finding a new spot. But now doing soft acrobatics more than I do parkour or jumps, um, I find it interesting to play with areas that I think have some sense of beauty to them. And sometimes it's an interesting building in the backdrop. Sometimes it's a lonesome tree. Sometimes it's just an empty soccer court or something that I feel has a certain mystique about it. But essentially it's these nice little places where I'm like, I, there, something pulls me there uh, that I haven't been to yet. And I would love to paint on that canvas a little bit. So it's more the, the novelty and looking for beauty in a backdrop. Something like that that makes a nice training environment for me. <laughs> And I do recommend people to check out Aaron's Instagram because, yeah, there's a lot of beautiful videos with beautiful backdrops. You know, you also have an interesting style of editing as well, which I will give you credit for. Oh, I appreciate that. Thank you. <laughs> I want to thank you uh, for joining us today because, yeah, it's been really great to get your insight into this wonderful world of soft acrobatics, but then also more just the, your whole journey through movement and your, and your perspective on it. So thank you. Thank you so much, Fan. This was a, a joy. I think it's really nice how you're um, managing to have these conversations with all different sorts of people. And there's a really good vibe underneath all of that. Like it's, it's yeah, there's a bunch of people that I'm discovering as well through your podcast. And uh, well, thank you for doing it. I think it's adding a lot to the, to the culture um, for uh, you in Australia, I'm sure, but also in, in the global field. Just it adds that layer of connectivity a little bit, makes it more, more a whole thing. Appreciate it. Thank you for that. And that's a wrap, guys. That's episode 56. That was Aaron Martin on the podcast. Thanks to Aaron for joining us once again. Aaron was really easy to talk with. 
real common energy there. So I think he's doing a lot of great work. I really recommend you guys to check out his Instagram pages, Aaron Martin Tin, and also the Soft Acrobatics page because there's a lot of rich resources there for the aspiring movement practitioner to check out. So hope you guys enjoyed that one. Hope you guys enjoyed this episode. Thanks to you guys once again for staying all the way to the very end, for listening to the podcast, for supporting the podcast. I really very much appreciate it. And I look forward to hosting you once again in the next episode. So if you have any questions, just remember to feel free to reach out to me on Instagram. That's at P. That's at P-H-A-O-N-P. Or go over to the website on thepassivehang.com. Otherwise... I'll catch you guys in the next episode.